through the book of Genesis, when you get to the latter end of that book, you encounter the whole alienation and reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. So that's what we've been doing. We've encountered that, and it goes chapter after chapter after chapter. Uh, there are several chapters on the subject of this reconciliation. But there are insights into each episode of this reconciliation that applies beyond their situation to ours. So what we're going to do is look at the next episode in the ongoing saga of Joseph being reconciled to his brothers. Now you recall the story. They sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, and as you know, he ends up in jail, and then from there, from prison, he ends up the prime minister, vice president, second in charge in all of Egypt. And then there is a famine, and so his brothers are sent by his father to Egypt to get food. And he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. So he finds out, he has them tell the story, he asks questions, and knows that only ten of the brothers came, and one has been left back with the father, namely Benjamin. So he tells them, uh, you know, I'm going to keep Benjamin. Uh, I know he kept Simeon until you bring Benjamin down here. That was the deal. Now, we've already looked at that episode, and sure enough, they go back, and the father at first would not let them take uh, Benjamin back to Egypt. So uh, famine got severe, which is the very word the Scripture uses, and when it got severe, uh, he finally conceded and said, all right, you can take Benjamin. So uh, they go back and they take Benjamin with them. Now what that does in the overall scheme of the re reconciling them is Joseph has made them demonstrate that they are trustworthy, that they can be trusted, because he didn't trust them. I mean, they sold him into slavery. But there's more to the story. So the question becomes, what else does there need to be for there to be reconciliation? If there's going to be complete reconciliation between these much-divided parties, what else has to happen? And that is given to us in Genesis chapter 44. Keep in mind that as we open the story, these brothers have demonstrated their trustworthiness. So Joseph has forgiven them. That's not the issue. Uh, they've demonstrated they're trustworthy. Then what else is there? Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 44, verse 1. Genesis 44, verse 1. And he commanded the steward of the house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they could carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And, they, and put my cup, the silver cup, 
in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, that's Benjamin, and his green money. So he, that is the steward, did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away and their donkeys. Now let's pause for just a second. The last episode ended with them having a banquet. The banquet is ended, and after the banquet is over, Joseph says to his steward, I want you to give them as much grain as they can possibly carry back on their donkeys. And then I want you to put the money that they paid for the grain back into the saddlebags. And I want you to take this cup of mine, and I want you to put it in the sack of the youngest. The youngest was Benjamin. I want you to put that special cup in his sack. And so, this simply tells us, he did that. And they departed. They were going back to Canaan with food, money, and a cup. A cup that they shouldn't have had possession of, not to mention the money. So the question is, what is going on? What is he doing now? He's already made them demonstrate that they're trustworthy. What's this one about? Why is he going through this again? And the answer seems to be that he has now set Benjamin up to be the thief. And as we will see in a minute, he's going to send the steward after them, and Benjamin's going to be caught. He's plotting against them. This is a conspiracy. But the nature of the conspiracy is to see, will they stick up for Benjamin? Will they have compassion on Benjamin? Or will they just say, let him go? Take him back, he was the thief, then take him back and throw him in prison and we'll go on. Which is what they did to him. Remember? So, what's going on here is this is another test. So now the question is, how do they respond to this test? So these opening three verses just tell us about the conspiracy, which revolves around the cup, this silver cup. We'll get the significance of it in a minute. The next set of verses tell us about the brothers being confronted. So let's pick up the story at verse 4. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off. Now, the last time they left, they got way up the road, several days' journey before they figured out what was going on. This time, they didn't get very far. They hadn't gone very far when Joseph, verse 4, said to his steward, Get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this one from which my lords drank, and with which he indeed practiced divination? And you have done this evil in so doing. So Joseph says, Now what I want you to do is I want you to go catch them. And when you catch them, 
you accuse them of stealing. And what they stole was this cup, this cup that he used to divine truth somehow. Now that sounds like paganism, and it is. Later in the Mosaic Law, that's forbidden. And the question becomes, did Joseph really use it for that purpose? And I think there are indications later in the story, no, he didn't, but that's part of the conspiracy. That's part of the deception. So, that's his instruction. Go overtake them and accuse the youngest of stealing that sacred cup of mine. Verse 6, so the steward overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servant would do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? And whosoever of your servants is found, meaning found to have taken the cup, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. They are so sure that they, no, none of them took the cup, that they're indignant. They are confident. And so they say, look, uh, you search all of us. None of us have this cup. And if someone did take it, whoever took it, that person dies. And the rest of us will be, all become slaves. By the way, have we heard this story before in the book of Genesis? Remember who else did this? Remember when Jacob, their father, fled because Esau threatened to kill him, and he went to another land and found his wife, her father, and then they took off many years later, her father planted the same kind of thing. Remember that story? Okay, history repeats itself. That same kind of thing is happening. But they make this incredible declaration that whoever stole that cup, then kill him. And if any one of us did it, the rest of us will become your slave. They are that confident that none of them took the cup. Verse 10. And he said... Now also, let it be according to your words, he with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Now the steward is speaking, and he says, now wait a minute, let's don't get too hasty. i tell you what, um, if we find the cup, then uh, instead of killing the guilty party, uh, and that's all we want, uh, then it'll be according to your words, uh, but you will be blameless. We won't blame the rest of you. We'll just blame the one who is guilty. We only want him. Now, this is the test. Because if they find, they're gonna, he's going to find it in Benjamin's saddlebag, right? So the question is, are you going to say, okay, let's get rid of the brother? That's the whole point of this story. Verse 11. Then each man 
speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he, that is the steward, searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Can you just imagine the drama of all of this? There are ten brothers. No, matter of fact, at this point there are eleven. Yeah. Line them all up. We're going to start with the oldest. And they go through his material, and the sack, and it's not there. And they're saying, see, we told you. And they go to the next one. They go to the next one. And with each additional sack, they get more and more cocky and confident. Told you we didn't take the cup. Then they get to Benjamin, and verse 12 says, And the cup was in Benjamin's sack. Verse 13, Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded the donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell down before him on the ground. These folks are in agony. I mean, they promised their father Jacob they would bring Benjamin back. And now Benjamin has been set up to be a thief. And the great question is, are you going to stick by your brother, because you didn't stick by me, meaning Joseph, or are you going to desert him? So this is the turning point of the story. They tore their clothes. In the ancient, the ancient world, that was a sign of grief, bereavement, agony. I mean, they are just cut to the heart. They are just terrified that they're not going to be able to take Benjamin back. So they go back to the city, and they throw themselves down before Joseph. So, verse 15 says, And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Now, he says, you know, didn't you know, I'm, you know, they think he's an Egyptian, and that all of them did this kind of thing. Don't you know I can do that? Now, apparently, he didn't need the cup to do it because he's implying he did it without the cup. And so it's this verse that leads many to conclude that he really didn't do it at all. But he did do something similar because he was the interpreter of dreams. That's what got him into trouble in the first place. Matter of fact, this story starts with him having a dream of them all bowing down before him which, by the way, they just did again. And then he gets to Egypt, and he has a dream when he's in prison. Uh, I'm sorry, he interprets the dream in prison of two other prisoners. And then he interprets Pharaoh's dream. So he did practice some form of uh, what we would call today being something like a fortune teller, only in his case it was the Lord that was giving him this information. And he's saying, don't you know I can do this? Why would you take my cup? I would know who had it. So he's saying to them, I got this some supernatural way, is the implication of verse 15. Now they are really 
hung. They don't know what to do. So Judah speaks up. Verse 16. Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. Now, couple of observations which are very important to understanding the story. They say God has found us out. That seems to imply that they're admitting they're guilty. And perhaps that's the case that they think Benjamin took the cup. I'm sure he denied that. But many think that what they are saying is be sure your sin will find you out, and God has punished us for the sin we committed in selling Joseph to be a slave. So maybe the chickens have come home to roost kind of thing. Maybe what they are acknowledging is we, we committed this sin long ago, and the Lord is disciplining us because of that sin. But here's what's significant. Again, the crux of the story. So they say, here we are, verse 16, my Lord's slaves, and here's the critical part, both we and he with whom the cup was found. So what are they doing? They are demonstrating their loyalty to their brother. And that is what this story is all about. This is critical. These are changed people. They sold Joseph. He became a slave. They sold him into slavery. And now, whatever, they are transformed into people that are not going to do that with Benjamin. They are going to stick by him. They're going to be loyal to him. And that, I submit to you, is what Joseph wanted to hear. But in the meantime, they've got to get out of the bind they're in. So let's pick up the rest of the story, beginning with verse 17. But he said, that is, Judah said to Joseph, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up to, in peace to your father. I've got this backwards. It's not Judah speaking to Joseph. It's Joseph speaking uh, to them. Then Judah came and said to him, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? Remember this? This is on that first visit. He asked them, Do you have a father and do you have a brother? He knew the answer. And what uh, Judah is doing now is reviewing the story. He's saying, remember, you ask us. 
Verse 20, And we said, My Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Now remember, Joseph and Benjamin have the same mother, and that's a real critical part of this story. And Judah is explaining, you ask if we had a brother, and we told you that we had a brother who was dead, because they thought Joseph was dead, and uh, our father had, in his old age, had another child, that's Benjamin, and uh, he loved him very much. Verse 21, Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face no more. So it was, when we went up to the, your servant, my father, by the way, notice he's calling Jacob Joseph's servant. Wasn't that the original dream he had, that they would all bow down to him? At any rate, verse 24 says, uh, and it was that when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. We told him what you said. And the father said, go back and buy a little food. But we said we cannot go down if your, our younger brother is not with us. Then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, we know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me. And I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take the one also from me, and calamity fall to him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. In other words, if I lose this son, Benjamin, it'll kill me. I'll die. He has said that before, by the way. Judah is now just reporting what he said. Verse 30, Now therefore, when I came to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since my life is bound up in the, in the lad's hand, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with me, that he will die. So your servant will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. So, by the way, this is the longest speech in all the book of Genesis. And what this speech is simply doing is, frankly, reviewing everything that happened, most of what Joseph already knew. 
But what is really going on that's significant is that Judah is demonstrating his loyalty to his brother Benjamin. And that is what Joseph needed to see. He needed to see that these brothers would stick by their brother Benjamin. Now let's go back to the beginning of the story. They were jealous. They were envious. They were angry. And what Joseph needs to see is that they have dealt with that issue. Now keep in mind, in the whole story in Genesis, they have demonstrated their trustworthiness, but there's something else they needed to do. And that is to see that they dealt with the real problem. They might have been willing to bring him back just because they wanted the food. Remember that? This whole thing is about food and a famine. So what they need to do is demonstrate that they dealt with the root problem, which is their jealousy and envy of their brother. And so he's using Benjamin as the test case. And what this speech demonstrates is that Judah and the other brothers have demonstrated their loyalty to their brother Benjamin. So, verse 33 says, Judah now says to Joseph, Now therefore please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the Lord go back up with his brothers. And how shall I go to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that has come upon my father? This is incredible. Judah is saying, tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. And the deal is simply this. I'll stay. I'll be the slave. I'll pay for his crime. I'll be his substitute. Only please, I beg you, let Benjamin go back, because if you don't, it will kill my father. So this thoroughly demonstrates that Judah was a transformed man. One author has said, the supreme proof of Judah's repentance and the moral high point of his career was his willingness to trade places with Benjamin and remain in Egypt as a slave. This is the first instance of human substitution in the scripture. Jesus Christ, Judah's descendant, demonstrated the same attitude. He not only has now demonstrated his trustworthiness, he's now demonstrated his loyalty to the point that he would take Benjamin's place and take the punishment for the crime that supposedly Benjamin committed but didn't, just so he could send Benjamin back to his father. By the way, you can't read this without thinking about the fact that 
Jesus Christ died in our place and became our substitute. 1 Corinthians 15 says Christ died for our sins. Uh, And that means he was our substitute. Instead of us dying, he died. Instead of us going to jail, so to speak, he went to jail. And that's the kind of thing that is happening here. So, Another has said, a spiritual metamorphosis for the better has certainly taken place in Judah. He who once callously engineered the selling of Joseph to strangers out of envy and anger is now willing to become Joseph's slave so that the rest of his brothers, and especially Benjamin, whom Joseph loved more than Judah, may be freed and allowed to return to Canaan to rejoin their father, end of quote. All right, that's the end of this episode. There is more to come, but just this episode teaches us a very critical little point in the subject of reconciliation. I don't know of another passage of Scripture It gives as much detail about the reconciliation of two alienated parties as this. This goes on for chapter after chapter and won't be concluded till the next chapter. But what's the point of this chapter? And I would sum it up by saying, in order to be completely reconciled, the offender needs to demonstrate not only trustworthiness, which was done in the previous chapter, but also that he has dealt with the issue that caused the alienation to begin with. The spiritual cause, which was the jealousy and the envy and the disloyalty to a brother. So what this chapter tells us is that these men, led by Judah, has have been completely transformed and changed. These men who were not loyal have become loyal. They have dealt with their own sin at the deepest level. And that, I say, is really the issue in a complete reconciliation. Not that you just tip your hat and say you're forgiven. The next step would be to say, well, now can I trust you? You can demonstrate your trustworthiness, but even beyond that, you need to demonstrate that you've really dealt with the cause of the problem to begin with, which was not being loyal to one of your blood brothers. So, the story teaches that in order to have complete reconciliation, The root cause of the alienation must be resolved. One author put it like this. Joseph next tested his brother's loyalty to Benjamin by framing Benjamin and charging him with stealing Joseph's cup. These events prompted the brothers to acknowledge that God was punishing them for the treatment of Joseph many years earlier. Judah's plea for Benjamin voiced the genuineness of the brother's loyalty to Benjamin. It contrasts with the former disloyalty to Joseph. 
I thought that statement by one commentator really put its finger on the pulse of this chapter. That it just throughout is an illustration of their now loyalty to their brother. Another said, In the final and great test, the brothers thus demonstrated that they had changed, that they were repentant over the sin against their brother. There was now concern for the father and self-sacrificing love for the half-brother, namely Benjamin. So someone has pointed out, if believers have been envious and hateful of others in the past, then God might have to put them through stressful situations to make them realize how much they must do for their fellow brothers to prevent great evil in the family of God. So, one more time. To be completely reconciled, you've got to deal with the root problem. And the root problem in this case was disloyalty versus loyalty. And that they did by willing to take Benjamin's place. Now, as we've gone through Genesis, I have repeatedly said that in order to get the full benefit of this story, you need to see it in the context of the book. Have you heard me say that? Uh, I have, throughout this explanation, repeatedly gone to uh, outside the chapter to explain what happened before this chapter. But what I want to do before I close is put this story in the context of the book of Genesis in light of what will happen. Now, what I'm about to tell you is not often understood. It's one of those spiritual truths that is often over missed, uh, overlooked and missed as people study the Bible. This is an illustration of something that could affect each and every one of us. Whether there's a need for reconciliation in your life right now or not is not the issue when it comes to this. This is a super important spiritual point. So please listen to me very carefully. Ultimately, this story illustrates what it takes to rule according to God's ideal. Now, where did that come from? How does ruling come out of that story? And that's when I said you've got to read the rest of the book. Because when we get to the end of the book, chapter 49, Jacob, and by that point they've all been reconciled, thoroughly, completely, is going to make some prophecies off, out of each brother, each son. And when he gets to Judah, he's going to say that Judah is going to rule. Meaning, of course, that a descendant of Judah 
is actually begun, going to become the king. Now you need to put what happens in this chapter with what's going to be said in chapter 49. That God is choosing people to rule. So who does he choose? He chooses people like Judah. One author explains it like this. Jacob will crown Judah with kingship. Chapter 49, verse 10. Because he demonstrates that he has become fit to rule according to God's ideal of kinship that the king serves the people. Now, why is all that significant? Because according to the New Testament, the Lord's coming back. He's going to set up a kingdom, and he's uh, going to choose among believers those who are going to rule and reign with him. Right? All right. Who does he choose? Well, there are a number of things in the New Testament. We're going to discuss that, hopefully, in a series I'm going to do next year, which isn't that far away. But in the meantime, there's something here. The king is not the dictator. It's the one who serves. You serve, and you end up ruling and reigning. That's the truth of the New Testament. This illustrates, and that's what's so important for us. Mark chapter 10, we're told Jesus did not come to be served, but to be a servant. So when you serve like he serves, you reign like he reigns. As a matter of fact, we're called co-heirs, co-rulers with him. In the kingdom, he will come to establish. So if you serve the Lord, and learn to be like him in serving others, you will reign with him. And that's what the story illustrates. In this chapter, Judah is a servant. In chapter 49, he becomes a ruler. We just had a presidential election. And regardless of what you think about the candidate, this has nothing to do with Republican or Democrat. doesn't have to do with who won or who lost. It has to do with a senator named Jeff Sessions. How many of you know who Jeff Sessions is? Raise your hand. You know who Jeff Sessions is? You never heard of Jeff Sessions? He's a senator from Alabama. So what's so significant about him? He was the first to endorse Donald Trump. When no other senator, politician, virtually anybody of note would endorse Trump, Jeff Sessions did. So after Trump won the election, somebody said, will Sessions be part of his cabinet? Will he be part of his administration? Oh, yeah. And somebody said, what job will he have? And the answer was, any job he wants. 
And the rumor right now is that he is going to be, the last I heard, possibly Attorney General. But here's the point. He served the one who became president, so he is going to rule with the president. And that's what this story is about. That Judah got transformed, and in that transformation, qualified for rulership. Matter of fact, this author said, uh, Judah is transformed from one who sells his brother as a slave to one who is willing to become a slave for his brother. What a story. What a transformation. What a truth. Being transformed from one who sells a brother into slavery to one who is willing to become a slave for a brother. That's what God wants us all to be. And that's what God will reward with kingship when he comes back. Father, thank you. Thank you for this truth tucked away in a ignored story in the Old Testament, but may the Spirit of God impress upon us that we're to be servants. We're to serve you by serving others so that one day we can enjoy rulership in your administration. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.